Well, we welcome you to our uh, midweek service, and we are so grateful that you take the time to join us for all of this. It's kind of a, maybe a jump start, a recharge in the middle of the week, uh, give you a little something to think about and uh, to focus, of course, upon the Lord because we want to glorify and honor the Lord. And have you noticed that it seems like that when we put things in the right order, glorifying and honoring the Lord, it seems like the overflow of all of that is that uh, he touches every other part of our life. So often we find that in the world, and believers are susceptible to this too, we focus on the immediate things, we focus upon the urgent things, things that kind of scream for our attention, and in that we say, you know, Lord, I'll get back to you whenever I have time, and everything stays in drama and chaos and those type of things. But when we honor the Lord and we seek first, as Jesus said, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things are added unto us. And we need to remember it's not that God doesn't care about relationships. He does, it's not that he doesn't care about your finances or your well-being or your mental health or any of those kind of things. It's just that he wants us to focus on what really matters and what really can make a difference in every area of our life, and that is the glory of God. Which leads us into Psalm 95. We looked uh, last week at the first six verses, and we talked about worship. And now we get to verse 7, and we're just going to look at one verse today, and we're going to talk about some reasons why we should worship the Lord. Now, we want to make sure that we understand that worship is not merely attending church. Um, you can worship while you attend church, but you also, being honest, you can attend church and never worship God. You can be short-sighted, you can be self-focused, and um, you can be distracted by everything else that's going on and other people, and you can miss the glory of God. The definition of sin, again, is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now that makes it to where we need to think about this concept. I can come to church and miss God and fall short of the glory of God and actually sin. Can you imagine putting your time in week after week of going to church and uh, putting in your time, so to speak, and have it matter for nothing at the judgment seat of Christ? Have it burn up and turn to ash, be wood, hay, and stubble? That would be a horrible thing. And if all we think of when we think about worship is Sunday morning and coming to church and enduring that time together, getting it over with and then moving on, we have really fallen short of the glory of God. This is uh, critically, critically important for us. And that's why um, we sometimes think that our Christian duty is expressed in Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but all the more as we see the day approaching. Uh, obviously, that's the will of God, and that's what God expects out of believers, and we ought to take that verse seriously, okay? But we forget Hebrews 10, 24, considering others, how we may encourage them 
to love and to good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. See, those two verses go together, and it tells me that when I come to church, my uh, focus is, of course, to be upon the glory of God and worshiping Him, but I can do that at home, and you can do that at home. We can do that on Monday. We can do that on Wednesday. We can do that on Saturday. As believers and priests unto God, we have access to God, and we worship Him all the time. The gathering is supposed to be our time to interact, to help, and to encourage other people to do what they ought to do. To do the love and the good deeds. And we join them in it. And we have synergy in that situation. And that's what is supposed to take place every time the church gathers. Or we fall short of God's plan. So let me ask you this. Is it possible for you to encounter God. To worship God throughout the week. Monday through Saturday. Is it possible to do that and then to be ambivalent toward the gathering of the church, whenever it may be? And I'm going to say no, not if you're a believer. In fact, the worship of God is going to compel you to gather with other believers and to use your spiritual gift to encourage them to be better believers, more mature believers, as well as receiving that for yourself. And so uh, as you think about all of that, put those two verses together. And if you don't love church, then you really don't love Jesus because Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. If you don't really care about the church, you don't really care about the glory of God because Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, it's a prayer now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And right after that, Paul says that Christ may receive glory in his church. The church is on the heart of God. The Bible says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So to say that you love God and don't love church, those two things don't go together. That's an oxymoron, I suppose. To say that you are a worshiper of God and a follower of Christ, and yet you're not tied in and plugged in and a part of his church, then those things just do not go together. Now, some people would say, well, I just haven't found a perfect church, or every time I go to church, something is wrong. Well, granted, there are some things you can't compromise on, but at the same time, the idea that you're going to find a perfect church with perfect people, well, the old saying goes, if you ever find the perfect church, don't attend it, you'll ruin it, because it's a gathering of sinners. It's a gathering of the imperfect. And the Lord, the Bible says, is not ashamed to call us brethren. He's not ashamed to be with us, meet with us, and identify with us, to be patient with us, to discipline us, and to help us, and to grow us. So why should we be holding back on identifying with brothers and sisters in Christ who are not quite all they need to be, because that's our job Back to Hebrews 10, 24, to encourage them 
to love and to good deeds. We're building up one another in the body of Christ. Now that is the outflow of worship. But if you're not interested in that, you're probably not a worshiper of God. And in that case, if you're not a worshiper of God, you really probably ought to check and make sure that you are actually saved. Make your calling and election sure. Examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. Because David could not ever get away just from worship and his awe of God and his love for God. And uh, the, the type of thing that he is saying here is supposed to be doing what Hebrews 10.24 says. He's encouraging us to love and to good deeds. And this is what it says in verse 7. For he is our God. Now that ought to stop and make everybody shout for joy. That ought to make the bells in your heart ring and ring loudly. You know the God who created the universe and he knows you. He died for you. He has redeemed you. He saves you. He provides for you. He is personally your God and you are his child. And that ought to cause worship to be the most natural and heartfelt thing ever to uh, that we ever would experience let's say for he is our god and we in contrast are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand and then he says in the same verse today if you will hear his voice and the next verse tells us do not harden your heart We'll uh, talk about that next week. Let's focus in on um, verse 7. And let's talk about the fact that we should worship God um, for several reasons. There are three of them that he gives us in here. Now, before we do that, I've always admired uh, Nancy Lee DeMoss. Listen to what she says about worship. Worship is a believer's response to God's revelation of himself. It is expressing wonder, awe, and gratitude for the worthiness, the greatness, and the goodness of our Lord. It is the appropriate response to God's person, his provision, his power, his promises, and his plan. Well, that's really, really good, isn't it? When we think about what she has said about worship and we put that into what the psalmist says about why we should worship, let's think about some negatives. We don't worship because it makes us feel better. I've heard people say that when I go to church, I just feel better. Well, that could happen at a pep rally. That could happen at a, a ball game. That could happen at a self-help thing. That could, help it, that could happen at a business training seminar or uh, whatever. It's not about how you feel. Worship um, doesn't happen because we have superstitious fear. Some people say, well, it's Sunday morning. I'd be afraid not to go to church. God might burn my house down. My kids might get sick. And coming to church is not like rubbing a rabbit's foot that'll keep bad luck away or anything like that. That's superstition. And superstitious fear is not a motive for worship at all. 
And we don't worship because it makes life work. Some people just say, well, if I go to church, things just happen. If I give, then things just happen. And, and uh, I, I just don't want anything to fall short of that. Well, it's not about making your life work because you don't worship yourself. And you don't work, worship your achievements. You don't worship circumstances or feelings or any of those kind of things. And we don't worship because... It's just a family tradition. It's just what we do. I was raised this way. And uh, in grandma's house and in mom and dad's house, it's just what we did. And I want to keep those kind of things alive. That's not really what worship is. In fact, the Bible says here, according to verse seven, uh, 7, that we worship God. And it all starts with this, because of who he is. Not for what he does, even though that's important. Not for what he provides, even though that's important. And we ought to be thankful. We worship him simply because of who he is. We uh, saw this in um, Nancy DeMoss's description of worship about his greatness and his goodness. When I was going to uh, school, we used Millard Erickson's Christian theology, and he divided the attributes of God into attributes of greatness and attributes of goodness. It's even uh, like the little kid's prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Greatness and goodness. So if we think about who God is, understand the only way that we know him, the only way we understand anything about him is because of his revelation to us. So when we talk about his greatness, think about the fact that the Bible says, when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. We've got to connect to God on his terms. And he is a spirit. So one of the great things about God is that he is everywhere and he is able to minister he's able to reveal himself he's able to judge he's able to carry it out anything because God is first of all the spirit he's not like us we can't even lay eyes upon him can we we uh, can see Jesus because he took on a bodily form but understand that before Jesus did that he also was spirit and uh, he has chosen to be in a body and to die for us. And then to even take that glorified body that was raised from the dead, he's taken that back to heaven. There's a human representing us, and that's the God-man, Jesus Christ. But God the Father and God the Holy Spirit remain in spirit form. Think about this. He's great because he has personality. He's not just the force. He has personality. He can be grieved. He can have joy. He, um, uh, the Bible says that, um, was it Moses or Abraham spoke to God as a friend? I mean, think about this. This is the God that we serve. He's not just a, an impersonal, mysterious force out there. He also is life. Not only is he alive, but he gives life. He is the source of life and the sustainer of life to everything 
everywhere. Doesn't matter whether it's an ant. It doesn't matter whether it's a tree. It doesn't matter whether it is wildlife. It doesn't matter um, whether it is you or me or someone else that we know and love. He is the one that gave us life, and he is the one that sustains our life. And we know that According to the psalmist, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. In fact, God has determined the number of our days even before any of them have taken place. He is life. He's also infinity. You can never find the end of God. You can never tax God. You can never bring God to the point to where he has to take a deep breath. You never find God in a position where he has uh, soreness uh, from overexertion. You never find God to where uh, there's something that he cannot do just simply because he's winded. He's run out of steam. He's run out of gas. He is an infinite God. The infinity of God talks about, well, for one thing, he is everywhere. The psalmist said, whether you go up or whether you go down or wherever you go, you're going to find God. He's an omnipresent God. But he is also in his infinity he is the omniscient god there's not anything that he doesn't know whether it's in the past whether it's in the present whether it's in the future whether it is out in the open or whether it is hidden whether it is something that is expressed or whether it is something that is kept silent he knows everything about us and uh, being omnipotent uh, and omniscient and omnipresent, those three things we all know about, those are infinite things. That's a, a mind-boggling thing, isn't it? He is also a God of constancy. He doesn't change. And that is not just a stubborn way. Why won't God change? And why is it that he is not um, changing? Doesn't he want to keep up with the times? And doesn't he want us to uh, see him as relevant and contemporary? Well, this is the God who is relevant and he is contemporary, but he's also ancient. He's also rooted in things that do not change. And here's the key. They do not need to change. God is a perfect being, a perfect God. And so he never gets more information that updates him. He never discovers anything that he didn't know before that now this is better and uh, now it's more fashionable or now it's something that can make his life better. There's no way to improve God. There's no way to make him anything other than what he is and what he is is absolutely perfect and so there is no need to change. We need to change. This world needs to change and we change in a positive way, by becoming more like him and by knowing him. This is a God that we worship. But also attributes of goodness. Think about this. Moral purity. God is holy, God is righteous, and God is perfect justice. Every decision he ever makes, every decree he makes, every judgment he makes is absolutely perfect and it's right. And we sit around and agonize about things. How could a loving God do this? And why is this happening in the world? And I mean, we get all tangled up on all of that kind of stuff. As if we have any moral or even intellectual capacity to somehow judge or to give God 
any kind of counsel. Job 38, God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? He might be asking us that question too. Hey, smart guy, if you are so brilliant and you would stand in judgment over me, First of all, are you morally perfect in everything you do? Are you always right in everything that you do? And uh, could you have figured out how to create the world, how to keep the planets in their place, the stars in their place? And uh, boy, he sure could have used our help, right? When we think about the goodness of God, we also think about the word integrity. God is a God of genuineness. You never have to question who he is or what he is doing. He's a God of veracity. He doesn't lie. He doesn't deceive. He doesn't try to trick us or anything like that. He's also a God of faithfulness. He cannot lie. He's a God who does everything that he says he's going to do. And in time, everything will be brought to pass. He keeps his word and his promises. He's also a God of love. He's a benevolent God, reaching out toward the undeserving, which would be us. He is also a God of grace, and he's a God of mercy, and he's also a God of persistence. He's not moved by winds. He's not moved by change. He's not moved by the shifting sands of culture. God is who he is. In Exodus, excuse me, chapter 20, Verses 1 through 6, when God is introducing the Ten Commandments, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself um, a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He's the Lord. There's no one else. He is jealous for us to worship and to honor him so that he can show that love and that mercy and that blessing. See, that's the difference between God's jealousy and human jealousy. Human jealousy is destructive, destructive self-destructive, kills relationships, and it also harms the other person. God's jealousy is so that he might be able to pour his blessing upon us. Secondly, we worship God because of who we are. Notice he says we're people of his pasture. By people, what do we mean by that? It means that we're created by God. We didn't create ourselves, and we are limited There's only so much we know. There's only so much we can do. There's only so much that we are capable even of experiencing. We also are sadly depraved. Our ancestor Adam sinned against God and he passes that sin nature on down to each one of us. 
And so everything we do, even at our very best, is touched by the poison of sin. And we are powerless to do anything about it. We're powerless to redeem ourselves. We're powerless to get free from all sin. Now, there may be some sins. An alcoholic, for example, may quit drinking or a drug addict may quit using drugs. But it's as if, as humans, we just exchange one set of sins for another. And our pride and our arrogance and uh, rebellion toward God, all of that continues on. And we're powerless to redeem ourselves. Um, There was a song when I was younger that said, I should have been crucified, I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in disgrace, but Jesus, God's Son, took my place. Well... I appreciate the fact that it mentions and teaches the substitutionary death of Christ. But the first part of that bothers me. I should have been crucified. You know what would have happened if I'd been on the cross? I would have died and gone to hell. I would not have accomplished anything because me being on the cross, all that would do is be a time of suffering, a time of pain, and a time of death that would be my gateway to hell forever and ever and ever. You see, it's not as if God says, okay, either you go to the cross or Jesus goes to the cross. It's not like that at all. Jesus on the cross was not just finding a way to die. He was bearing the wrath of God, listen, that you would have borne in hell. Jesus was taking the hell you deserved, the eternality in hell. He took it upon himself. And somehow the infinite Son of God was able to take your eternity and the eternity of everyone who believed. And the Father concentrated it and put it upon his Son. And he paid the debt in three hours. You never could have paid the debt. You would be paying it for an eternity in hell. And so the song kind of misleads a little bit. It's not that if you had gone to the cross, then... um, You know, it would have hurt, but you would have been okay after that. It's not that at all. Crucify you or anyone else a thousand times, a million times on the cross, and you still die and go to hell. Because as humans, we cannot redeem ourselves, and we can't change our heart, and we certainly cannot redeem others. We ought to worship God because it was a God that we talk about who is great and who is good, who does all of that for us. Praise his holy name. Romans chapter 3 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. That would include you. No one seeks for God. That would include you. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That would include you. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. And the venom of asps or snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses, full of bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood. It's always been a human problem. Might not be exactly your problem, But if you look, it's a problem in our society and in our culture, swift to shed blood in one form or another, right? And in their paths 
are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And God has delivered us from that. And what is the only response, the only proper response? And that is worship, true worship. Number three, we worship because he says we're not only people of his pasture, but sheep of his hand. We worship because of who sheep are. Sheep are, as one writer said, foolish, translate that into stupid, defenseless, helpless in other words, and they are wayward. They always find a way to stray, always find a way to get into trouble. They always find a way when they're on their own for destruction. You know, we are so much like the sheep. We're not nearly as smart as we think we are. We are like the sheep because we uh, say things like this. Well, I can handle that. I can handle that. And the enemy lays a trap for us that we can't even see. And we're not even smart enough to figure it out. And what happens? We find out how defenseless we are. We find out how uh, easily ensnared we are, easily destroyed that we are. And all we have to do is just look around. How many celebrities do you know? They have everything they could ever want and more than they could ever spend. And then they end up doing something stupid and they end up in trouble in a way that ruins their career, it ruins their reputation, it ruins their relationships. I mean, think about all of those kind of things. And we are wayward. There's always greener grass somewhere else. And we're just not smart enough to know that as one person says, the grass is always greener over the septic tank, isn't it? Isaiah chapter 53 tells us about this. In verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Now why is this necessary? Why did we need that substitute? Why did God punish his own son? Because all we like sheep, there you go, have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. Isn't that amazing that God would love you and he would do that for you? And that you would fail to worship him every day. That you would have something more important to do this morning than to read the word of God. That prayer would be such an afterthought in your life. How dare you? How dare you? To think that we could dismiss his church trample under the foot the blood of Jesus Christ in the way that we live and in our attitude and live like practical atheists. Oh, I know we all believe in God, and yet the way we live is as though God doesn't exist. That we could ever sing a hymn without any passion or without any joy. That we could ever be ambivalent or bored by the word of God. That we would be somehow yawning at the thought of who God is and what he has done. It's just unthinkable. Because the enemy of worship is in verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. And we'll talk about that next week. And I would just ask you, ask God to examine your heart. 
Because the only reason you don't worship is because you don't think you need to. You don't think he's really worthy of it. Now, intellectually, you would never admit to that. But in your heart, you don't really believe it or you would do it. You don't really believe it or you would do it. Because what you do is a reflection of what you really believe. You ever heard that before? And so a hard heart is the enemy of worship. And may God change us from a hard-hearted person to a tender, warm-hearted believer who loves Jesus Christ with all of our heart. May we pray together before we are dismissed. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we think about worship, we think about how our definitions of it and our um, expectations of worship fall short of the glory of God and therefore they're sinful. Forgive us of our sin, especially in the area of worship. May we worship you because of who you are. May we worship you because of who we are as people. And may we worship you because like sheep we tend to go astray. Draw us to yourself and bring us back to worshiping you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Pray for one another. Continue in your giving. Continue in your outreach and ministry. And remember that uh, on October 18th, this next Sunday, Sunday school will start again. Be here at 9 o'clock in your classes. Wear your mask in the hallways. Um, I know maybe you are like I am. I hate all those things and hate doing that. But I'm willing to do it for those people that uh, are concerned and do have some problems that maybe um, we don't want to expose them to. It may not be corona, but anything else. We'll just do it for them because we love our neighbors. So we'll look forward to seeing you then, and may the Lord bless you.